All right, if you have your Bible, you want to follow along in the, in the bulletin, we're looking at, at Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 15. This is Jesus' first kingdom parable, and we're looking at uh, the Luke 8 account, uh, beginning at verse 4. And when a great ca- crowd was gathering, and people from town to town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, He said to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while in a time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for that, in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. They pray for us. Father, help us to hear well. We ask that you'd help us to pay attention. Help us to see where this is speaking to us. And may we not just be hearers, but doers of the word. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I preached on this text before, and I've used this, and I'm not going to do this this morning, but it does intrigue me, this idea that what if the angels had their fantasy football team and their fantasy football team was, was the people in the congregation and said, what soil are you and, and what kind of trade value do you have? And, you know, if they're looking down at you, are you a one, a two, a three, a four? You know, are you on the waiver wire? Where would you fit into the kingdom as God is looking, you know, as his angels are looking down and they're wondering, well, where, where are we going to invest in as to who's going to bear real fruit for the kingdom this year? And uh, just an interesting idea, but I'm not going to go there this morning. This passage is, is a convicting passage because it speaks to all of us, and it's really rooting down. And I think if we're honest, we can say there's little parts of each of these soils that at different times reflect us. But Jesus isn't saying that we can be each of these soils. Jesus is saying we are one of these soils. And there might be little traits of other soils, but we are one of these and I think for some of us, though, that have been around, you know, I'm no longer a kid anymore, but I can remember when I was a, a junior in college, and I, the most, probably the most memorable summer that I ever had was a summer that I lived in Brooklyn, New York, and I worked with a, uh, a missionary that had a ministry to skateboarders, and it was called HiBA, High School Born Againers. It wasn't the greatest name, but... This guy was a great missionary, and he had reached these skaters for Christ. 
And he was leading a Bible study, and he came and spoke at chapel at Nyack. And I thought, man, I would love to just see what he's doing and live with him for the summer. And this guy invited me to let me live in his house right off Sunset Park. It was a very Spanish neighborhood, and it was a very tight quarters. I remember there was no air conditioning in the summer of, it was bad. It was, I can still remember how hot it was there. Um, but the four guys, let me just tell you about the four guys, because they fit the four soils. So there was Stephen, there was Ivan, there was Ducky, and there was Richie. Now Stephen was 14 years old, and basically Rick, the missionary, had taken him in off the street. He had nowhere to go. So his dad uh, was in jail. His dad was a drug dealer. His mom uh, had gotten converted. She became a Christian. But after all the years of her uh, crack cocaine addiction, and crack was really big at this time uh, in the city. It was, it was wreaking a lot of havoc. But she became a Christian and, and had remarried, but through all of her drug addiction, somewhere along the line, she had contracted AIDS. And so he watched his mom painfully die. And the stepfather said, no matter what happens, I'll be there for you. And within a month, he split. And the stepfather left the picture and left two kids on the streets. The one became a drug dealer. He got stabbed that summer, almost died. Uh, and then Stephen, who was on the street. And so Stephen was an incredible skateboarder, uh, 14 years old. All these kids are sponsored skaters, okay? That means they get their boards for free, they get their trucks for free, they get their wheels for free, even their shoes, okay? And I was skateboarding with these guys, which was crazy. I mean, the first time I ever tried to do an ollie, the board wedged between my legs. And it was like unbelievably painful. They laughed at me all summer long as I tried to hang out with these kids and skateboard with them. But the only way I was to get to know them was to sign with them. So Stephen, his heart was hard. And so Stephen only had a third grade education. So here's a kid who's 14 years old. And he was incredibly street smart. He could get a dollar out of you faster than anybody. And he knew how to jump the trains and could get anywhere in the city for free. And he would come to Bible study, but he was only there because of the food and the snacks and the friends that skated. But he had no interest in the Word of God, and so he just had no ears for it. And so last I knew, Stephen was in jail, and I haven't heard from him since. So that was Stephen. He was just the hard heart. And then there was Ivan, and Ivan was this uh, high school kid. He was like a junior in high school. And he came to Christ, and supposedly, I mean, he, and he, every time he would share his, his testimony, we would have these skateboard rallies, we'd bring in the kids from the different boroughs, and they would skate for trophies, and they had ramps and everything, and then we'd present the gospel. And he would share his testimony often, and he would cry. He would just get real emotional, really moved. And we were going through the New Testament together. That summer, we would read different chapters. We were reading like two chapters a day, and we'd share what we were learning. He was this great guy to be around, very affectionate, gregarious guy, lots of fun to be with. And when I went back to school and I would come down for the weekends, one of the weekends I just showed up and the other two guys, Ducky, and they were like, Ivan has gone, he's left us, he's gone back to the world, he's no longer in the church. And for, for Ivan, I think the reality was with his little education, it was much easier to sell crack on the streets and make some money than to work at McDonald's. And so he gave in to selling drugs. Never heard from him since. He stopped going to church. 
he chucked the faith. One who was so affectionate, emotional, sharing his testimony, just turned and walked away from the Lord. Very sad. Then there was Ducky. And Ducky and I were very close friends. And Ducky uh, was a very talented individual. He was an artist. Uh, he would make children's books. And he had all these different little characters that he would draw. And for him, skateboarding was an art. And so he did all of his tricks differently because it was a creative... And he often would win the tournaments, and he would just create his own tricks. And for him, it was all a thing of beauty. I mean, he was just an artist. And he loved the word. He loved the church. And he got involved after, and I didn't, I've lost touch. I've only talked to him once in like 20 years. But, and I talked to him about five, eight years ago. And he got involved in a, in a home church that basically a lot of other people thought was a cult. And he really didn't understand the gospel anymore. So as he would, you know, he started making music, and yet none of his music, I listened a little bit, it was very confusing. None of it talked about the Lord. None of it talked about the scriptures. And the zeal he once had, I no longer saw. It was very odd. I, it seems to me that D Ducky was a strangled heart. And then there was Richie. And Richie I still keep in touch with. Uh, we're friends on Facebook, and we, I've seen him a couple times. Um, and so Richie was probably the most talented skater. He was actually in Skateboard Magazine a couple times. And he followed my path in the sense of he, he went to Nyack College. He was a Bible major. He became a Calvinist. He loved the doctrines of grace. And he went on to Westminster Seminary. He pastored an OPC church. Then he was a chaplain in the Army. And then in the last uh, eight years or so, five, seven, he's become a Catholic priest. And so I, I recently caught up with his father-in-law. He married the pastor's daughter of the church in Brooklyn. And his, the father-in-law, who's a pastor, told me the reason that he became a Catholic priest wasn't so much theological. It was for the perks. It was for the power and the money that came with the position. And I thought that really striking that in a Presbyterian environment, he was just one of many. But in the Catholic Church, with him being the, the, the priest, he could do whatever he wanted. And if he said, we're going to have a lunch, I mean, boom, it just would happen. So that's why he thinks that he did it. I don't know. It seems to me that he also is a strangled heart. And then the one who was discipling us all, Rick Kirschman, he went to Russia when the Iron Curtain fell, and he's still there today, laboring faithfully as a missionary with Sin International. Still get his prayer letters, lots of fruit from his faithful ministry. I would say he's the steadfast heart, still bearing fruit. But you see those four soils, and for a long time, I couldn't make sense of what in the world was I even there that summer for. Like, if you didn't understand this, like, when the hard times come as you start to grow and mature, you start to realize, well, what happens to those that fell away? Were they real or were they not? And what Jesus is getting at here is this is a real wake-up call. It's a call to look inside. Nobody wants to admit they're the first soil, the second soil, the third soil. And yet Jesus is saying that he's the sower, and then there's this powerful phrase at the end of verse 11. The seed is the word of God. Think about that. The seed is the word of God. The word of God is being sown. 
Every time it's communicated, every time we read it, every time it's preached, it is the word of God. What are we doing with that word? And Jesus is saying he's the sower and the seed is the word of God. And that word is going forward into our hearts and lives. And so if we understand this parable, parable rightly, we should be praying more for the hearer than the preacher. It's important to pray for the preacher. We see certain examples in scripture, like the end of Ephesians 6, where Paul asked for prayers, right? That, we would, that he would boldly proclaim the gospel as an ambassador in chains. However, the way to the Bible is the problem is the hearer, not the problem of the preacher. The Bible cries out 25 times, at least, to pay attention and even to pay close attention. And too often the reply is that Israel would not listen because she was stiff-necked and stubborn. And the Bible says to us in Ephesians, or Hebrews 2 to pay much closer attention to what you have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We need to pray for divine hearing aids to be able to spiritually hear the word of God. We talked about Lydia last week with the baptism. And Acts 6, 4, 16, 14 says about Lydia that it says she was a worshiper of God and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. God opened her heart to pay attention. We don't naturally pay attention. If you're dead in trespasses and sins, these sermons just wash right over and you get home and you say, what was the message about? And you can't even remember. What was the sermon about? I don't know. What was it about? We just don't remember. But the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Has the Lord opened your heart to pay attention? You see, there are four soils here, and what we have is a stony heart, a shallow heart, a strangled heart, and a steadfast heart. The stony heart is the one that Satan comes and steals the word. We could say it's a stolen it's a stolen heart because the word is stolen from it. It never even makes it down into the heart. It's like putting that seed right on 495 on the inner loop. It's just not, it just gets trampled on. J.C. Ryle said this, Nowhere does, he, does Satan so labor so hard to stop the progress of that which is good and to prevent men and women from being saved. From him comes wandering thoughts and roving imaginations, listless minds and dull memories, sleepy eyes and fidgety nerves, weary ears and distracted attention. In all these things, Satan has a great hand. People wonder where, where they've come from and marvel how it is that they find sermons so dull and remember them so badly. They forget the parable of the sower. They forget the devil. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, is, is 31 letters. And in the very first one, day one, he talks about a man who goes into a British museum and sits down to read, and he said, I once had a patient, a sound atheist, and this is, now keep in mind, this is one demon writing to another demon, it's fictional. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, this is God, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had better under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. 
The enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion, you know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them, then this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line, for when I said quite, in fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning, the patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I added much better to come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway out the door. And once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past, and before he reached the bottom of the steps, I'd gotten into him an unalterable an unalterable conviction that whatever odds might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all this sort of thing just couldn't be true. The seed had been snatched. The second soil is the shallow heart. The word takes root, and it quickly bears fruit, but because of its shallowness, it falls away in difficult times. It's never really planted itself deeply. Benjamin Franklin was a man who loved to hear George Whitfield preach. He said that Whitfield could make him cry just saying the word Mesopotamia. And he, and he once talked about going to hear him preach and how he had resolved in his heart no matter what that he wasn't going to give anything to, his, to the orphans and to the charity. And he said as he heard him preach for a little while, he thought, well, I'll just give a little. And then as he heard him preach some more, he said, well, I'll give a little bit more. And he said, by the end of the sermon, he'd emptied his pockets and gave him everything that he had in his pockets. He was so moved by George Whitfield's preaching, and he would measure off how far George Whitfield could be heard in Philadelphia and believe that it was thousands upon thousands of people that were hearing him preach. Yet nowhere do we see any account of Benjamin Franklin's conversion to Christ? He loved Whitfield's sermons, but he didn't love Whitfield's Savior. He was the shallow heart that never took root. The third soil is the strangled heart. The word is being planted, but the thorns are choking the word. And the thorns are these, these deadly W's of life. Worries, wealth, and wishes. I wish I had this. wish I had that desires for other things. And then lastly, there's the steadfast heart, the good and noble heart that bears fruit with patience. Jesus is describing this seed of the word of God like a farmer that's sowing his seed, as you saw in the children's sermon. The farmer doesn't grow a garden for the foliage. The farmer grows a garden for the fruit. Jesus is the ultimate sower. He uses human sowers, but Jesus is concerned this morning not about the bells and whistles, not about numbers, nickels, noses. He's concerned about faith expressing itself in love, hearts that love him and express itself in manifested fruit towards others. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain, so that whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. To have a good garden requires effort on our part. Fruit doesn't just magically appear. You know, you saw those pieces of fruit here. There's some work that's got to be done. you got to do some rotor tilling. You're going to have to do some weeding. You're going to have to do some watering. You're going to have to do some pruning. I mean, there's a lot that, has, that goes into a good garden, but at the end of the day, the garden, ultimately, you're dependent on whether it's a bunker crop or not, is often from year to year, it just is really outside of your control. 
And that's why some of the other parables say some 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold, that God's the one who gives the increase. So what did we, we do this morning? Well, to make room for the Word of God, we have to see that the Word of God is more important than the weeds and that it grows through the painful pruning to bear forth more fruit. We have to break up the hard ground. Hosea 10, 12, and 13 says, I mean, listen to this garden that's being described. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, the hard ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You've plowed wickedness. You've reaped iniquity. You've eaten the fruit of lies. That's not a very good garden because you've trusted in your own way in the multitude of your mighty men. Break up your fallow ground, Jeremiah says, and do not sow among the thorns. Paul put it like this in Galatians 6, do not be deceived, God's not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. And so I, I shared this morning in Sunday school during a promotion Sunday, I think it's good to be reminded of the power of the word of God because I think if, if you saw like uh, the unbroken movie and you read the book, they're two completely different things, okay? So if you read the book, you would realize that Louis Zamberini, at, he was a strong man, but at a certain point he realized he was a slave to sin, he had a drinking problem, and he wanted to go back, and he wanted to kill the guy who had, who had been so mean to him for years in Japan. And he was at the end of his rope. His marriage was breaking up, and he went to her Billy Graham preach, and he got saved. He became a Christian, gave his heart to Jesus. He came home. He got rid of all of his girly magazines, and he get, poured all of his booze down the, down the drain. He was a changed man by the word of God. The movie, on the other hand, portrays Louis Zamberini of it's all about him and inner strength and all coming from him. And I don't want you to leave this sermon thinking, well, it's all about me and all about what I need to do to make myself more into the word. You do have to exert effort in getting this book into your heart. But I want you to hear this morning what God has promised to do in the word of God. So listen to these verses and be reminded of the truth that would make you hopefully hunger more for God's word. 1 Peter 1 says, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So the word of God is imperishable. It's living and remaining or enduring. It lasts forever. How about us in comparison? Well, we're flesh. All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God, same word as abiding, remains forever. It endures. You're just real temporary. You're a breath. You're just a flower. But the word is imperishable. It will last forever. And so... As we're thinking about this, listen to a couple of these other verses. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, We thank God 
constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's at work in you. It's living and active. It's imperishable. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them, there's great reward. Leave that slide up for a second. What do you have if you don't read the word? Subtract those four things, and that's what you have. You have an unrevived soul. Translation, a dead soul. Making wise the simple. If we don't have the word of God, we are simple. We are fools spiritually. We have an unrejoiced heart. We have a sad heart, a depressed heart. And instead of eyes enlightened, we have eyes closed and are blind. And we're not warned by the word and all of its warnings, and we don't get all the rewards and promises of keeping them. So we need the word of God to remind us and to refresh us, to renew us, to enlighten us, to make us wise, enlighten us, because the word of God is living and active. It's unlike any other book. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It was good enough for a king, and it should be good enough for us. Deuteronomy 17 says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, the king, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him. Shall be with him. He shall read it in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. Once again, what does the word of God do? It's living and active, and it gives us the fear of God, and it brings this humility that we wouldn't be lifting ourselves up above our brothers. But if we're not reading the word of God, then we're not going to fear him, and we're naturally going to be prone towards pride and lifting ourselves up above our brothers and sisters. The scriptures were given that would give us hope. We get easily defeated Difficulties come, and we're to bear fruit with patience. We're told that the purpose of of the Old Testament, Romans 15, 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That's you and me, as well as the people that read this, the, the, the original reading audience in Rome. It's written for us. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We need the word of God, and we need to be in the word of God so that it gives us hope. You see, we get easily choked out by all these distractions, whether it's college football, pro football, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, movies, all, I mean, gardening, all kinds of good things. When was the last time you just sat and read a book of the Bible? Just read a book for your encouragement that you might have hope. Psalm 119 is, and what you see is that the word and prayer go together. And Psalm 119, as much as it is a meditation on the word of God, it's a prayer. And it's praying home the word of God. 
I just want to read a couple of the, the verses from Psalm 119, particularly if you're struggling with depression, discouragement. The psalmist wrestled with that, and he says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, I, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteousness, are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Not in wrath you have afflicted me, or in judgment, but in faithfulness you've afflicted me. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Colossians 1 tells us again how this word is, this seed, the, the word is described as a seed again here in Colossians 1. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you or in you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. So leave that slide up for a second. What is the word of God doing in you? So those who are his, it's going to be bearing fruit and it's going to be growing in you. It's this seed that's going to abide and remain. And so how does Paul pray then? Well, he follows that up and he says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, here we go, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing, or the same Greek word is growing, he's praying home what God has already promised to do through the word that this word is in you and it's bearing fruit and increasing or growing, and that's what he's praying for, for the people, so that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And isn't that what Jesus is talking about? That they would bear fruit with patience. G. Campbell Morgan tells this interesting story, and Tim Keller's told it numerous times, and you probably have heard it before. But he was in Italy once, and he went into a graveyard, and it was this kind of this tourist attraction. And there was this one grave that was centuries old, and it was probably some wealthy person because it was this enormous, thick piece of marble that was over this grave. And yet an acorn had dropped down into this, into this tomb. And it had, over the centuries, it had split the marble slab, and out came this magnificent oak tree through the marble slab. Who won? The acorn or the thick slab of marble? You see, the word is imperishable. God's word does not return void. It will accomplish its purpose. But Jesus is warning us, are we paying attention to this word? Are we letting it go down deep into our lives? It will accomplish its purpose. And just as this word or this acorn just mounted up this wonderful, beautiful oak, we read this morning that Jesus came and he talked about these oaks of righteousness, this planting of the Lord this promise of this prophecy that Jesus will, as he's ushering in the kingdom, he's raising up oaks of righteousness. 
And so we've got to get rid of the weeds, tear down the idols, take the jackhammer to our hearts, take the rotor tiller out and dig it up so that we can be more fruitful for his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, may we recognize today that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We pray that we would love the word even more than we love our lunch and our dinner. That we would long for the pure spiritual milk. Pray that we'd be like Jeremiah, who took your words and he ate them. And they were a joy to him and a delight of his heart. For he said, I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Lord, may your word be the delight of our hearts. Give us a hunger for it, we pray this day. In Jesus' name, amen.